This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also access at cortezcurrents.ca. Jen Stevens left this world on Tuesday, July 26, 2022. In today's program, her daughter, Darshan Stevens, talks about Jen's life, her medically assisted death, and the changes that came about throughout this process. My biggest grief was when my mom got her diagnosis of inflammatory breast cancer. And my longest grief was probably what I was going into now after she's passed. But that initial shock and devastation of finding out what my mom had, I have never had a moment like that before in my life. I guess I've been quite privileged and lucky to not have any other close family members die. But I was absolutely wrecked. I was incoherently babbling. My mom told me on the phone and she didn't know what it meant. And I just held it together when she told me. After I got off the phone with her, I looked it up. And then I knew how bad it really was, that there was very little chance that she would have more than two years. It was like being shell-shocked, I imagine. My husband was holding me. It took quite a while for my mom to start understanding the implications of her diagnosis. There's so many things I appreciated about my mom and the way that I've been pondering what a legacy is now speaks to that. I think that my mom's legacy and perhaps what I hope my legacy will be as well is to continue the threads that she started being down for life. That's my mom. She's down for living. She gives a big resounding yes to being alive and she walks right into life. That's not necessarily my way of being in the world. I've always been a bit of a reluctant liver of life. (laughs) So that's an inspiration for me. Part of the ways that she did that, to be more specific, is that she's extremely community oriented. I like to say she had basically no internalized capitalism. (laughs) She had no value on making money and getting somewhere in life. She liked crafting and making nomies. When she worked as the play school teacher, she put in double the amount of hours that she got paid for doing crafting and little extracurricular stuff. She just didn't even think about it. And she had all of these funny little business ideas that would never, ever make any money. (laughs) Remember one time she had this business idea of doing overnight oats and she would deliver them to people. She did that for a while. That was very cute. Overnight oats are the breakfast thing where you soak oats overnight and you put raisins or cacao or whatever in it, coconut, and then you eat it in the morning without having to cook it. So she was going to do this breakfast delivery of overnight oats in jars and she did it for a while. That's a perfect example. She would do silly little things like that because she was trying to make a little bit of extra income once she was on disability. Disability payments were only like $1,100 a month or something like that. Part of being an eldest daughter, I think, is that I'm always trying to do really well in the world. That initial impulse comes from trying to do well for my parents when I was little. I have succeeded a lot in my life in a lot of different ways. But my mom would have been perhaps even more happy if I had spent more time making nomies with her, doing silly little watercolor painting going to Manson's Lagoon and riding the current, which was one of her favorite things to do. She kept on trying to get me to go and I'd always be like, no, I don't think so, mom. 
she really liked doing things that were childish and fun and exciting and impulsive. She would have liked it if I had sat and watched bad television with her. My husband always tells this story about how my mom would start conversations. An example would be she'd come up to him and he'd be mowing the lawn and she'd be like, you're mowing the lawn. (laughs) And he'd be like, yes, I'm mowing the lawn. We'd always laugh about that. She'd talk to everyone about just the most obvious things in the world. We'd be like, oh, mom, you know how you're coming off right now? But then when you see how many people she's got at her funeral, it really gets you thinking. (laughs) There might be something to that way of engaging in the world. The joy in connecting with people. My mom lives with us here on the property. I've been her number one person, almost like a partner to her for probably nearly 10 years now. We're very close and she doesn't have a partner and she's very close with her kids. It became very real for me a lot quicker than it became real for my mom. She was such a fighter with her cancer. She was doing weekly chemo treatments for most of those two years. And there was no way she was ever going to miss a chemo treatment. There were a lot of times where I wished that she had thought I could do this thing with you or do something that I really love in this time and miss one treatment. Let's go back to the beginning. My mom got together with my dad when she was 19. My dad was 13 years older. He'd already been married before and had a child, my sister Crystal. I was born... When my mom was 22, she had my brother, Sterling, when she was 24 or 25. Then a little bit further down the road, she had my brother, Forrest, when she was probably 31, 32. So he is nine years younger than me. I remember thinking when my mom was pregnant with Forrest, you can't have a baby, mom. You're way too old for that. And here I am having my first baby at 37. My parents stayed together until I was an adult, probably until I was around 20 or so. We grew up on a boat and then we grew up on an island in the Nanaimo area. We had a very kind of unconventional upbringing. We traveled a lot. We lived in different countries. Most of that unconventionalness was inspired through my dad. I think if it was just my mom, we would have had a bit of a more stable and normal upbringing. But my dad influenced us a lot to do things that were more unconventional. In some ways, it was good. And in other ways, probably not not as good. In 2018, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was stage one at the time. And she did a lumpectomy which means that she had a lump removed from her breast and she did a little bit of chemo, but she didn't do the rest of the recommended treatment. She went some alternative routes instead, but she also didn't fully follow through on the alternative treatments. So I can't really say that the alternative treatments also didn't work. She thought that she beat it. It was only stage one. She was one of the healthiest people you'd ever meet in your life. Her vitality was very strong. That was February 2018. In May of 2020, two and a half years ago, she got the diagnosis of inflammatory breast cancer. A month or two before she went in and got that diagnosis, her breast was inflamed. And I was really busy at the time and not thinking about it. She thought maybe she had mastitis. 
we didn't really even connect it to the possibility of cancer. Although my husband, Alex, tells me that he looked it up, that inflammation of the breast. He saw that it was the possibility of inflammatory breast cancer, but he didn't tell me because he knew how much it would upset me. She hadn't even been to see the doctor about it by then. So she went to see the doctor, put her on antibiotics for mastitis, which is a swelling of the breast that you can get, I guess. I've had it from breastfeeding, but I guess other women can get it that aren't breastfeeding too. It didn't help the swelling. I can't remember how she ended up seeing the surgeon, but she ended up seeing the surgeon that she had seen before. And he looked at it. I think they did a biopsy and he told her that she had inflammatory breast cancer. She called me on her way back home to the ferry from Campbell River and told me that the surgeon had said she had IBC. And she didn't know really the full implications of what that meant. I had this very common experience over and over again, where my mom would tell me some piece of news and my whole body would go completely cold and frozen. That was one of the really severe times that it happened. So that was the piece of very bad news. Then she did a CT scan and they saw something in her hip that they hoped was just some scarring or something. We were hoping that the breast cancer was still local to the breast. Then she got a PET scan and they saw that piece in her hip was actually cancer. My mom had metastatic cancer. And when you have metastatic cancer, it's considered palliative and incurable. We're very similar in most ways, but our orientation towards the world is very different. My mom's very much an optimist, whereas I'm very much a pessimist. My mom was very hopeful throughout all of her two years of treatment and two years of her symptoms progressively getting worse and worse. Whereas every time her symptoms got worse, I felt they were getting close to the end. And it was hard for me that she was so hopeful about this new treatment or this new bandage for her arm that was going to stop the swelling she hoped. Whereas for me, I was able to pull out and see from a bigger perspective that nothing had ever gotten better from the initial diagnosis. Everything had only progressively gotten worse, but she never really saw that. My husband was always telling me to let her have her hope and not (laughs) squash her hope, which I think that mostly I didn't do, but it was a double-edged sword because she might not have had as much perspective as I would have liked her to have around how much time she had left and what she wanted to do with that time, especially time that she was able-bodied. It was a matter of treating it and maintaining my mom's quality of life wouldn't be curable, but it's possible she could die from something else if she lived for 10 years. People do live for 10 years more with metastatic cancer, but my mom had this specifically aggressive kind of cancer and it had spread to other places in her body. When did it become real for your mom? I think that my mom weaved in and out of how real it was for her. Sometimes she would say things like, when I take Cove to play school, when Cove is walking, when Cove is talking, referencing my son further down the road in times that I knew that my mom wouldn't be around for. Cove is my nine-month-old son. Perhaps that was just a way for her to have a little reprieve from the reality of knowing that wasn't going to be the case for her. 
just allowing herself to have that imagining of being in our lives for that long because there's nothing she wanted more than to be a big part of Cove's life growing up. There were probably other things she wanted equally as much, but maybe there was nothing I wanted more <laughs> than for her to be a big part of Cove's life growing up. So I'd say she weaved in and out of it. At the beginning of the diagnosis, I knew that she probably only had two years. There's a part of me that knew that, that that logically was the very high percentage of what would happen. There were other parts of me that would pray, and I'm not really a praying type, <laughs> that I could have 10 years more with my mom. Because some people who have metastatic cancer do get 10 years. I would pray for that. The way that I prayed was that I would swim in the lake because it was spring and summer when my mom got her diagnosis. I would swim in the lake and I would go under the water and I would pray for my mom to have 10 years. Then I'd come up again and then I'd go under and do it over and over again. Swimming has always been like a big cleansing for me and very settling for my nervous system. It's like a reset. My mom has always been very passionate about swimming too. It's something that we share. But anyways, my point around that is that window of time that I kept hoping for kept getting smaller and smaller. First, it was 10 years. And then as things were very obviously getting worse, it became five years. And then this past Christmas, I thought, wow, mom's going to die soon. Mom's dying. I was the only one that thought that. But she went through a spell that to me seemed really bad. And I thought, just two years. I know this question was about how it became real for her and it's become about how it became more and more real for me. But I guess I'm comparing and contrasting my journey with hers. Hers was always hoping and sometimes having glimmers of more of a reality. But I don't think she ever thought up until the last month that it would be that short that it would be only just over two years that she would have from her diagnosis. When she had decided that she wanted to do medical assistance in dying, when she actually decided, I want to do it next week, she gathered us all together, different family members at different times. Each time she started crying and said, I'm not going to get better. I'm not getting any better. It was almost like, there were parts of her that were only just getting that. I think there were other parts of her that knew, more logical parts. But I think it's so, not even just hard, but actually impossible as human beings to come to terms with dying. That's my perspective. Maybe some people are able to, but I can't possibly imagine what it would be like to actually reconcile and come to terms with my own death. So... There were parts of her and parts of all of us, I imagine, that because we can't imagine all of a sudden I'm going to be dead, all of a sudden I'm not going to be here anymore. Those parts almost were shocked. Like, I'm not getting better. I'm never going to get better. Like, it was shocking to the of her. On the one hand, it was very painful for me to see. And on the other hand, it was a relief for me to see her finally coming to terms with that reality that I felt like I had grappled with and I had held on my shoulders alone for quite a while before that. 
one other piece I'll add to that is that she told me a couple of days before she died that she wanted to die, that she was ready to die. I don't know if I've ever felt that much relief about anything in my life before. There are a lot of layers here, but I think it's a lot to do with being her eldest daughter, her main person, a kind of rentified relationship that I had with her where I felt like I was her parent for a lot of time. I felt like that she was ready to die somehow let a lot of weight off of my shoulders. She so much didn't want to die. So much didn't want to die. And she fought so hard for that. I felt so helpless that I couldn't fix that for her. I tried to fix so many things for my mom and succeeded in a lot of them, but I couldn't fix that that cancer was killing her. And for her to say, it's okay, Darsh. I'm ready to die. It's okay. I didn't have to fix it for her anymore. That's what it was. There was a morning three or four days before my mom died. There were a lot of family around. Everyone was jostling for time with my mom. But I was in there with my mom. I got to spend extra time with her because I did a lot of the practical things with her meds and all of those kinds of things. She said, I'm ready to do made and I want to do it as soon as possible. And I was like, where did that come from? Because it seemed to me, she had recently gotten on this different kind of medication, these fentanyl patches, and it seemed like she was doing a lot better on that medication, less shaking and throwing up and all of the side effects that she was having before. She said that it was because the night before I had told her, mom, you're barely eating. You're starting to starve. She was like, what are you talking about? I'm eating. <laughs> And I was like, okay, mom, this is what you've eaten today. And I told her what, exactly what she had eaten that day. And it amounted to a few tablespoons of food, probably like maybe a little bit more than that, but very little food we're talking here. She said that it was from that conversation because she's been with people who are dying before. She knows that when they stop eating, that it's an indication that the dying process is coming on naturally. Shortly after her diagnosis, she said, if I die, when I die, I want to do it on my own terms. A few months before she died, she became eligible to do MAID. We talked a lot in our family, especially me, my husband, my brother and sister-in-law. There's a big difference between being eligible for MAID, I'm going to do MAID, versus choosing a date to do MAID. We kept wondering, like, what makes a person cross that threshold into deciding on a date? That's what happened for my mom. There was something about that conversation where she became aware that her body was actually naturally starting to shut down, where she was like, yeah, I want to do made now. All of us in my family were walking this fine balance of not wanting to make her have any doubts about her choice, but also, are you sure? <laughs> kind of thing. Because if we had said, are you sure, mom? Then it maybe would have given her doubts where she didn't have any. We were just being careful around that. They did have some conversations to make sure that she really was sure. And she was never not sure. As soon as she decided she wanted to do it, that was it. She was ready. 
I think that was Thursday when she told us that she wanted to do maid. She said, I want to do it as soon as possible. I want to do it Monday. We said, okay, could we do it Tuesday? (laughs) There were a lot of logistical things around the burial and all of that stuff that would have to happen really fast. And of course, we wanted more time with her. So she decided, she said, Tuesday's fine. The morning of her death, she woke up. She knew exactly what she wanted. She wanted blueberry pancakes, (laughs) even though she could only eat a very small amount of them. Then she wanted Sterling, my brother, to take her for a bath. The place she lives doesn't have an indoor bath. My very close friend was away at the time and she was letting us use her house and she has this beautiful bathtub there. So we took my mom to my friend's house me and my two brothers gave my mom her final bath. We took photos of it and we took a video of it. We were documenting everything at the time. My mom had this terrible wound. She had this something out of nightmares, this tumor under her arm. And she hated it so much. We had to do a lot of wound care a couple times a day. And it still wasn't perfect. It seeped and all kinds of things. It was horrible. We were putting her bandages on and she was like, this is the last time. I think she maybe even swore. She was like the last effing time. Maybe she didn't. Maybe that's just in my mind. But just the relief for her rep that she was never going to have to deal with that stupid wound anymore. Of course, everything was hard. There's so many last things. My mom's last bath, the last time she would eat. The last time she would talk to each person, the last time she would hang out with my dog or with my baby. So we gave her bath. The doctor arrived shortly thereafter and had a good long conversation with my mom. And my family members, maybe eight of us, my mom's parents are both still alive. So they were there. Her two brothers and her sister-in-law, me and my two brothers and my husband, my best friend ended up being there as well and my baby, (laughs) and my dog. My husband built my mom this outdoor floating swing bed when she got her diagnosis. And there was an inkling that it would be for when she was convalescing. She decided that would be the right place for her to get made. I had told the family beforehand and said, maybe prepare or think of something that you want to say to mom before she receives made. I don't know if they had something prepared or not, but... um, No one had a chance to say anything to mom. She used all of that time to give everyone her last words of wisdom. (laughs) She brought each person up individually and talked to them. I overheard what she was saying to my aunt and uncle about how now that your daughter is going to be in Victoria, maybe you can spend more time with Sterling. It's just so my mom to be constantly bringing the family together. Her very last words were about like trying to get people more together in the family. So she did that and it took quite a while. I really appreciate the spaciousness that the doctor gave. There was no sense of urgency from her whatsoever around how long it was taking. She arrived at noon. It was probably closer to two that she actually did the procedure. And the doctor came all the way from Comox and yeah. It was hard. I wish that I had been able to be more embodied on that day and on that morning, but I felt out of my body. I had a lot of anxiety and it was really difficult, the whole process, even though the doctor was really good at explaining what would happen beforehand. 
I didn't know that it would happen so fast. There's multiple things that give, and it does take the person a little while, maybe 10 minutes before their heart actually stops beating. I thought with the first little bit that went in that my mom would just get kind of woozy and sleepy. And it wasn't like that. It was like immediately she went in. One of the hardest things for me is that my mom seemed so sure of everything right up until she received that first injection. That was the only point that she said, now I feel a little bit scared. And a part of me tries to reassure myself and says, I suppose that's only human. I suppose that everyone or most people would probably feel that way. But another part of me feels like that was really hard for me to hear that she felt scared because she'd felt so sure of herself before that. We were all there with her, crowded around her on the bed, holding her. And after she died, we were all crying there for quite a while. The doctor said, your mom would have died really soon anyways. That's why she went so quickly after we did that procedure. She just immediately was gone because she was so close to death. Your mom gave every last ounce of everything she had to do all those things with you guys this morning and talk to you. It seemed like she had that energy to do that with you, but really you have no idea how far gone she actually was. I know that might get some pushback in talking so openly about MAID, but that's okay with me because I feel quite strong about how much dignity, agency, autonomy gives people to be able to make that decision. I think it's an incredible thing for people. And my mom knew right away that's the choice she would make. And I know for myself that I would probably make that same choice before she did the procedure. The doctor said, dying is really hard. And this way of dying is as good as it gets. It's not good at all, <laughs> but it's as good as it can be. My mom didn't have to go through things she didn't want to go through. She didn't want to go through not being able to do her toileting and having someone else do that for her. She didn't want to go through the incredible suffering that a lot of us go through when we do actually die. Dying, I love what Margaret said one time in one of the death caring meetings that we went to. She said, dying is hard work. And I've been at another person's death and I can see that's very true. And it was very true for my mom too. Like it was all oh, the suffering she went through. I would never wish on another human being, any human being for two years suffering and so much suffering in the last year. That was more than enough. Why would we ever wish that someone would have to go through even more suffering if they didn't want to? That's the way I feel about it. After my mom passed away, I was so exhausted. It was like all of the past two years just fell on top of me and it felt like I couldn't move. I just laid down in my mom's house it was Yasmina and Emma who did a lot of the helping from the Death Caring Collective. And there were a lot of people from the collective helping behind the scenes. But they were there, like, on the ground with me. After my mom died, I'd want to do the bathing and I'd want to do the decorating and all of this stuff with the body. I was just done. I couldn't do anything. So I did a little bit with them, but they helped with a lot of it. We had a shroud for my mom, interestingly enough. Before my mom's diagnosis, 
her and I volunteered with a death caring collective a few years ago. My mom had volunteered to start making shrouds. She didn't know that this material that she had bought for making shrouds would actually be for her own shroud. Family members were invited to do a little bit of embroidering of the shroud, each person that wanted to. So it would go up to her neck or so, and her face would still be open. Anyways, there were all of these kinds of things happening, opportunities for them to happen with my mom's body, but I was really too tired and too spent to really do very much. So there was the day my mom died, then her body was in her cabin for a a full another day. I couldn't go in and see her. I thought this would be such an amazing thing, having the body here and being a part of that. That's been a ritual and a part of so many deaths throughout the ages for so many cultures. But I don't, I just, I don't want to go in there. It was the third day that we had our burial in the evening at 6.30. I asked my best friend who was staying with me and my sister-in-law to come with me. We went into the cabin and my mom was laying there. Her body was laying there. And I just sat there for a while and cried. My friend started singing these different chants and different songs. Then the three of us started singing and my husband came in and we were all singing. There were flowers all over the house. And I started pulling all the flowers out of the vases and placing them all around my mom's body. We started taking things from her altar. People had brought things from her altar and putting them all around her body. Her body was on a big bed in the shroud up to her neck. And I took one of her felted crowns. She made so many felted crowns. She did so much crafting and I put it on her head. And I took some of the ashes from her friend Charles who died. And I put a little bindi on her forehead with those ashes. I took all of her little gnomies that she made and I stuck them all around her body with all of these cedar boughs around her body and all of the flowers. And I put a big sunflower flower in around her heart and I sewed the shroud around that. We were all singing and crying, and I was decorating my mom's, the whole bed around her body. My brother, Forrest, came in and he made tea. My mom's favorite thing to do every morning, she would make green tea, and she would drink out of this one little mug that Julie Nelson made that she loved with this little hand warmer. Forrest, my brother, made the green tea, and he poured it in that cup. And he gave it to me and everyone else that was there in the room, our family, four or five of us, all of us had green tea in honor of my mom. We sang and we cried and I decorated her body. And I understood this is why we keep the body. This is why we keep it for a while because I wasn't ready until then. And I had no idea when I went in there that I was going to do that but it just came over me. That was the most natural thing to do. Once my mom was decorated with all of these colorful flowers and her bright red crown with her bumblebee on it and all of the gnomies and all of her things, I was like, that's my mom with all of her silly crafty stuff all around her. It felt so much more natural to see her there like that instead of just with just the plain cedar boughs, which were beautiful. But all of the colorful stuff was so her, and it was incredibly cathartic and therapeutic. One of the best and most memorable moments that I'll ever have is us drinking that green tea and singing and decorating my mom. 
I wanted to add that little story in there because that was incredibly meaningful. And a good illustration for me of starting to understand in my body and in my lived experience of why historically we ritually do certain things. I was having tea with Bruce Ellingson and David Ellingson the other day, and we were comparing notes and speaking to our experiences. David was very close with his mom, Ginny, who passed away. I photographed that burial for them, and he made a book of those photographs of the burial and of photographs we had done with Bruce and Ginny at their farm before they moved. He says that it, it is one of, if not his most prized possession, this book that he has. I feel a real kinship with Dave because he felt so close with his mom in the way that I think I felt very close with my mom. Shortly after my mom passed, I ran into him and he said, I wish I could tell you that it gets easier. And that was exactly the right thing to say at the time. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. And we made this coffee date. We sat down and we looked at this book and we talked. And we talked about the death process. And in that conversation, I started realizing that I feel like the way that death is treated, especially in the last hundred or so years, especially in the Western world, is actually really traumatic for the people who are left behind. A person dies often in hospital and then the body gets taken away right away. It gets cremated or there's a burial where at the burial, the coffin doesn't even go into the ground often. They just stand around and then after you leave, the coffin goes in the ground. What I was saying to David and Bruce is that death is extremely hard and difficult. There's no way of getting around that. The way that we try to sanitize it as a culture by doing all these weird things around death, taking the body away, not really being a part of that process is a way to cut off that grief and how hard it is, but it actually has the opposite effect. We're trying to cut off the trauma, or we're trying to cut off the difficulty of death at the past by doing it in this sanitized way in our culture. But it actually creates a more difficult and more long-lasting and more traumatic experience for the people who are left behind. Whereas if we face it head on, which is what we did with my mom's death and with other deaths here in the community, it's very difficult and very painful and very confronting. But we're actually with it and we move through it. I feel like the death caring collective here on Cortez Island is claiming the death process. We're doing that by not looking away from death itself, the the illness and how difficult it is before death, looking after someone before they die, doing it ourselves instead of putting them in a hospital or having someone else take care of them. Of course, sometimes we need additional help. I'm not saying that everyone should be able to do that, but really seeing it and witnessing it and then being with the person as they die 
or close to it. In my case, with my mom, being with her body after she died, washing her body, blessing her body, crying with her body, and then other community members making a casket or a shroud for her, and then walking to the cemetery together a few days after my mom passed with everyone singing, crying, carrying the casket in a long procession, and then putting my mom in the ground. I was mentioning that I photographed Jimmy's burial. And I think it can seem a little weird to a lot of people, the idea of photographing a burial. It didn't seem weird to me. <laughs> Being an archivist and a documentarian, that would seem perfectly normal. But I photographed that burial for Ginny, and those photos ended up being really valuable to their family. And I just wanted to go full circle and say what ended up being really amazing is that David happened to be on island when my mom was being buried. He's not often here that often, and he's a photographer as well. So he was able to photograph my mom's burial. I'm not really a big believer in things like fate, <laughs> but if I did believe in that, I would think that was just the most perfectly fated, wonderful thing to happen. He made with the photographs of Ginny and the speeches that people gave about her and other photos of her when she was younger and how valuable that is to him was a huge inspiration to me. I really hope to do something like that with photos of my mom. My brother's a videographer and I'm hoping that he can take a lot of the video footage that we have and put together some kind of video about my mom and her life and her cancer journey and her death. I am hoping to put together a book and a slideshow with images and writing because I'm also a writer. Anyways, lots of hopes. Part of it is that I feel like nothing will ever do justice for my mom or for anyone's life. One of the hardest things about death is that people are so big in life and then in death they can be reduced to things like a book or even a headstone or a few memories i guess those are all point at my own tendency towards a way of being very existential in the world but i think that's also why i am such a documentarian and such an archivist and feel drawn towards that is because i feel that loss so acutely in general in life with all of the losses that we face, but there are none more acute than death. That's one of the hardest things that I'll have ever had to do in my life. But it doesn't feel like unfinished business. It's not going to keep me up at night imagining someone else putting her into the ground and me not seeing it, which the way that my mind works and I think the way that our minds often work as human beings is that the things that we imagine are worse than what we actually can be with and see. So that being with my mom's dead body, that actually watching the coffin go in the ground, those are some of the hardest things we go through as human beings. But it's worse to imagine it and not see it. When people talk to me about their loved ones dying and how they couldn't sleep, I think sometimes, not always, but sometimes that's because that death process has been taken away from us. Sometimes I have moments where I'm 
doing life and I'm engaged in life many moments. Whenever I have time alone, I'm deeply in the grief process, but it doesn't keep me up at night. I still sleep, although sometimes it takes me a long time to get to sleep. I've been having this interesting experience lately of this this wash of shame that comes over me around things that I feel regret about or things that I feel worried that I didn't do right after her death. Maybe I should have done certain things differently. Maybe I shouldn't have had a casket built for her and she should have just been in the shroud. Maybe I should have encouraged her more to do the green burial in the parkland instead of encouraging her to be in the cemetery. It's hard for me to know. She's so She was so easily influenced by me. It's hard to know whether I influenced her to make the right decisions or not, or whether which decisions really were her own or which were influenced by me. Anyways, I suppose that there will always be regrets for everyone. I think that this particular way of going through death with my mom and with the community-led death care and the whole community supporting and grieving together has deeply changed my life in a way that I didn't expect, anticipate, or know was possible. I feel changed. Before this happened, I was a person who was always trying to be something or do something or achieve something as though I'm actually going to get somewhere, (laughs) as though there's somewhere to get. I suppose there are parts of me that will continue to do that because that's part of being human, I think, and a part of my nature. But I think that a large part of that has died off of me now. The way that I'm moving forward in the world is becoming different. It's becoming less about getting anywhere because life is incredibly short and there's nowhere to get. I personally don't know what happens when we die. I don't think there's any strong evidence for any particular proof of anything, any one position around what happens after we die. I know that we get buried or get created and we have a headstone and we have people that loved us and that are sad afterwards and that we have those people that have memories of us and that those memories are different than the living being person that's very hard for me to come to terms with and very hard for me to reconcile because the person themselves is so full of contradictions and nuance and the memory of a person I find to be a lot smaller than the wholeness of that person and I guess that I spend a lot of my time now contemplating what is a legacy what is important to leave behind And I'd say what's changed for me after this death process with my mom is that question has changed for me from what is important that we leave behind to what is important that we leave behind, if anything. It's that if anything 
that has made me feel differently about my life and my day-to-day life and doing anything or getting anywhere. And it's so hard to change that orientation in my life from achieving something to just enjoying the moment, like being with my baby, for example, just for the sake of being with my baby rather than it going towards something greater or more meaningful. So I'm on a learning journey there. You've been listening to an interview with Darshan Stevens. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye.